I just thought I'd say something before we go on about the um, schedule going forward here. I've started working through my book, Systematic Theology, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. We did Introduction to Theology, What Is It, and the Doctrine of the Word of God, and uh, where does the Bible come from, and how do we know it's authoritative, and what about these challenges to the inerrancy of the Bible. We talked about that, and then we came to this doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. The Bible is written in a way that ordinary people can understand it. And at that point where I hit the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture and understanding Scripture, I took a little detour, and I'm putting in four or five extra weeks here of how to interpret the Bible. And so that's what we've been doing. And uh, now uh, we went through a number of principles of how to interpret the Bible. It's written in the ordinary language of everyday people. It's a historical document. It's about God. And we should look to see what uh, the text tells us about God in each case. And, and, uh, and then it, the original author had an application of reason that he wrote the text. And we should look and see what the original author's reason was and what he wanted the readers to apply to their lives. And um, so we talked about principles for word study, some computer resources for Bible study and things like that. And then we got onto this idea of tracing themes through the Bible. And that's where we left off before Christmas. We've had a couple of weeks of break. What I'm going to do now is uh, continue with that idea of tracing themes through the Bible, but especially how the Old Testament has a historical development over time as God is working through the Old Testament to show us more and more about what the Messiah would be like when he comes. And the Old Testament is looking forward to Jesus Christ. And so this is kind of an exercise in putting the whole Bible together and tracing these themes of uh, what Christ would be like. I want to take some Old Testament passages, starting with Adam and Eve, and going on uh, the creation of Adam and Eve, going on to their temptation, looking a little bit at the story of Cain and Abel. And what is that telling us? Cain killing his brother Abel, what is happening there, and maybe Noah and the flood, just kind of working through some situations in Old Testament history. Um, as I look forward at the schedule, I realize in the fall I've been here and gone and here and gone a fair bit, um, and Mike Langley is on me saying, now what's the schedule, what's the schedule? Looks like so far this spring I'll be gone March 19th, and that's all. And so uh, I just... I don't know if anything else is going to come up, unknown, but as I look forward to the Sundays here through the spring, um, it looks like we'll have some continuity, and I'll do this week and next week on this topic, maybe one more, and then get back into systematic theology, the necessity of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and then how do we know God exists, and the attributes of God, and the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's where we're headed for the rest of the spring, just, uh, just so you know where we're going. Here we are now, the witness of the Old Testament. Oh, yes, I had one more little note just to encourage those of you uh, who aren't here early enough to get the refreshments when they arrive and, um, and just chat with people. Uh, it is a time just to kind of mingle around. I try to be here early and set up and be uh, ready just to say hello to people about 7.45 or so. Anytime between 7.45 and 8 and you want to show up, that'd be great. If you kind of set in your mind to be here by 8, that just helps get, get us going in the morning. makes a use of the morning. I know it's kind of early, but on the other hand, what a joy to get up so early and see that brisk morning. All right. Uh, witness of the Old Testament to Christ. Um, these notes are a lot based on uh, a man named Edmund Clowney wrote a book, The Unfolding Mystery, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, Professor Clowney was my teacher at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia when I was there in, in the 1970s. 
and uh, he was president of Westminster Seminary. He just had an incredible skill of taking the Old Testament and tracing themes through it and showing how it looked forward to Christ. Um, how does the whole Bible fit together? Well, uh, that's the question. I one time found out that seminary students graduating from Trinity Seminary in Illinois, where I'd taught, that was the one thing that they said they didn't get enough of in seminary. How to put the whole Bible together? How do you put the pieces together? Well, one useful approach is to summarize its teaching on various topics, and we did that on the inerrancy of the Bible, the authority of the Bible. We'll do that later on the Trinity and deity of Christ and things. But another useful approach is to trace the historical development of themes from Genesis to Revelation. And there's a special term that people have used for that, and the term that in the academic world is used for that is called biblical theology. Now, you might think, biblical theology, isn't all theology biblical? Well, for some reason, this kind of particular approach has been called biblical theology, and the emphasis in biblical theology is an emphasis on this history of redemption. And I put that timeline up here on this board where we start with creation and then the fall where Adam and Eve sinned, Abraham, Moses, David... Uh, on through the Old Testament, and then comes uh, Jesus, the life of Christ on earth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his pouring forth the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then we have the church age, and then Jesus will come back sometime, and then there will be a millennial kingdom where Jesus will reign on the earth. Garth mentioned to me this morning, where did you put the tribulation? Yeah, the tribulation is in here, but I'm simplifying. And so... Um, uh, and then uh, there are different views on that thing. And then we go on to new heavens and new earth after there's a final judgment and, and, all, and God makes all things new. So that's, the salva- that's not economic history. It's not military history. It's not history of art, history of music. It's history of salvation. And that's the history of the whole world from God's perspective. And so when we trace themes throughout the history of the world, then we begin to see more of how the Bible fits together. Where we left off, just that uh, Sunday before Christmas, was the story of the wise men coming to bring uh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to baby Jesus in the manger. And I said, you know, there's some themes here. One is here are Gentiles coming to worship a Jewish Messiah. And when we see that, we should think back in the Old Testament how God had a purpose that from Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then there were occasional Gentiles brought into the people of Israel and brought to salvation, but only very few. But when the wise men come, it's a signal to us that God is going to spread his saving message, not just to Jewish people, but to the Gentile world. And here's the first example of that. And then we have other examples in the Old Testament of how God has promised that ultimately the wealth of the earth and the honor of the earth would be brought to the worship of God in Jerusalem and the worship of his king, the Messiah. And here we have the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh being brought to put at the feet of Jesus. And so we're getting a hint of the wealth of the nations being flowing into, flowing into Jerusalem. And that's going to happen in uh, Revelation 21 in the new heavens and new earth in a much greater way than it happened under Solomon, for instance, when all the wealth of the nations came into his presence. And so we were seeing some themes like that. Now, um, This is an emphasis on the history of redemption. This history of redemption is attempting to understand how God was teaching people through patterns, patterns or types that looked forward to Christ. And this word type is a word that might not be very familiar to you in this sense. It really comes from a Greek word, tupos, and it comes especially in this verse, for instance, Romans 5.14. Death reigned from Adam... To Moses, here we are, Adam at creation, to Moses, Paul says death reigned at that time 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, the Greek word is tupos, from which we get the word type, pattern, model, kind of a pattern, a model, an example, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type. He was an example. And so Paul says explicitly that Adam wasn't just ordinary per- any ordinary person. He was an example of the one who was to come. Adam. How was Adam an example of Christ? What was it about Adam that showed us that somebody greater was coming, and that was Jesus? Well, we'll think about that in just a minute. Clowney, Edmund Clowney, in this book, The Unfolding Mystery, uh, which I require students to read in, in one of my classes at the seminary. Clowney says a type, a type is a form of analogy that is distinctive to the Bible. And like all analogies, a type combines identity and difference. So Adam is a type of Christ. I think David is a type of Christ. Uh, we talked about that with David killing Goliath a few weeks ago. and think there are some others. So now when I'm doing this, I'm not just looking at those prophecies about a Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem or Isaiah 53 where he's going to suffer and bear our sins and by his wounds we are healed, those specific prophecies. I'm rather thinking about the historical events, the narrative events. How did those, if we read those historical events, we think about them, how are they showing what God is looking forward to, what he's planning to do in Christ? Now, Peter tells us that the Old Testament was written for our benefit and these Old Testament prophets were really serving us. And so now some of you have started, how many of you started reading through the Bible in a year with that handout that we we gave out here? Uh, I gave out one here that E.G. Barmore had given us, chronological, and then uh, Daryl also encouraged people to start reading through the Bible in a year. And um, as you're reading through the Old Testament, you think, How do these historical things point forward to Christ? And the prophets, how do they point forward to Christ? Well, 1 Peter 1 says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, What Peter is saying is that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, was in the Old Testament prophets. Now, I know when I say prophets, you think Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, those prophets. But the Jewish people and Peter, when he said prophets, he really thought, he was really thinking of the whole Old Testament. Uh, because Moses was the, thought to be the greatest of the prophets, and then other books written by Samuel and others of the prophets. So they're just, I think they're really thinking, I think Peter's thinking of the, of the whole of the Old Testament. And he's saying those people who wrote, they, they were wondering who was being indicated when the Spirit of Christ in them was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So now we're thinking about the sufferings of Christ. I think it's not just Isaiah 53. I was just reading through the story of Joseph, for instance. We'll get onto that, I think, next week. Think about Joseph, betrayed by his brothers. Hmm. You think there was a later Messiah coming who would be betrayed by his own people? He was cast down into a pit. They thought they were going to give him up for dead. And... uh, He was really sold into slavery, into Egypt. 
And then in Egypt, he was falsely accused. Hmm. The Lord's servant is going to be falsely accused, do you think? Is there somebody later who's coming who is going to be falsely accused? And he's put in prison. But then he's exalted to rule over the land of Egypt at the right hand of the Pharaoh. Oh, could God be hinting at the fact that later there's going to be a greater servant of the Lord who would be falsely accused and even suffer more than being put in prison? He'd he'd die. But then he'd be raised up to be at the right hand of the king, not just the king of Egypt, but the king of the universe. Could there be some hint there? So the sufferings of Christ being predicted, probably foreshadowed in Joseph's suffering and then exaltation to glory. Am am I making sense with this? See, and, and, And so Peter's saying that these prophets, when they wrote these things down, not just the predictions, but I think the history too, they predicted the sufferings and the subsequent glories. I think when they recorded all the wealth of the nations flowing into Jerusalem under King Solomon and then all the kings of the earth coming to hear Solomon and his great wisdom, I think it's making us think that there's a yet greater than Solomon coming, one whose wisdom will be greater than all and all the nations will come to hear his wisdom one day. So it's the subsequent glories that are being predicted too. And so I want to get us to read the Old Testament thinking, now, is this looking forward to the Messiah? Is this anticipating God is doing in a preliminary way what he's going to do in a final way in Jesus? So it was revealed to these prophets that they were serving not themselves but you. This is a great encouragement to read the Old Testament. They were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the goal then is to view every text in the light of this whole sweep of Bible history, Genesis to Revelation, and and, and say the whole uh, of the Bible is God-centered. We should look in each text for what God is doing, what it shows us of him. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Here again, he's talking about the whole Old Testament. It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we want to try to do that now with a number of Old Testament passages. The whole of the Bible is historically structured. So we should look at each passage to see how God is gradually unfolding his plan for history. Now, I'm not saying this is just automatic or that it's easy to do. Um, It'll take some thought and some study. Even those who lived with Jesus during his earthly ministry were slow to understand how the whole of the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ. In fact, Jesus, after his resurrection, he was walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. He hadn't revealed himself to them. They didn't know for sure who he was. And um, they were saying, oh, we're so sad. We had thought he was the Messiah, but he suffered. He, put, he was put to death. And, he, and, and Jesus said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, see that's back in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. He's going back to the narratives. Beginning with Moses and then all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
I think he's saying, don't you remember how Joseph was sold into slavery and put into prison and then he was exalted? He had to suffer first. Don't you remember how Jonah was cast into the sea and he went down to his death and then he came out and then he was able to preach? He, there was suffering and then, uh, then God saved him. Isn't there a pattern among God's people? Didn't David have to be exiled and run and hide from King Saul and his life threatened before he was exalted to be king? That is, don't you see this? That there's a pattern of how God works? That there's suffering before he brings about his purposes for, for his faithful servant? And I think Jesus was explaining to them. I think he was going section by section through the Bible and explaining to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so let's take some examples now from the Old Testament. First of all, there's Adam and Eve. Paul says Adam is a type of Christ. A type, meaning an analogy, a model, but it has similarities and differences. Well, are there some similarities? God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we start to think, I'm not reading you all of Genesis 1 and 2, but we start to think about Adam and Eve as God created them. Well, what, what were they to do? Well, they were to rule. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, their rule over the creation. And so, now, um, we get to this timeline, and we see back here, God said to Adam, uh, or to Adam and Eve, to, to uh, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. They were to make the earth subject to them. They were to rule over it. But did they do it? What happened with them and the creation? Did they, did they, they just had this wonderful kingdom where all the food and all the animals and the fish and the birds were all serving them and everything was wonderful. Did that happen? Ah, uh-uh. serpent comes. Wait a minute. Something's wrong here. You're supposed to have dominion over the serpent. But then they're letting the serpent tell them what to do. Ah, there's something wrong. And then when there's punishment, God says, thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. In the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the dust. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. Is that ruling over the creation? No, that's the creation ruling over them. And so, wait a minute, Adam is a type but he, he hints at the fact that there is somebody greater coming who is actually going to fulfill God's plan that human beings have full dominion over the creation. See, and, and God, God upset the pattern. So the creation is being harmful and opposing them and, and being destructive toward them. And so, and so there's a struggle to gain food from the earth. And, and um, how does that happen? The, the people are longing for a promised land that's flowing with milk and honey that will be of great abundance. And there's a prom- but, it's, but it's temporary, it's provisional. They, to rule over the earth and to rule over the animals. And the, well, 
sometimes they rule over the animals rule over them they have lions attack them and they have um you know they have uh, drought and famine and they have to go to Egypt and all that so so it's not working quite but then Jesus comes and greater than Adam he begins to demonstrate sovereignty over the creation you short on food well here's five loaves and two fishes okay we'll feed 5000 people with those got a storm going to threaten you to destroy you at sea the creation's going to kind of drown you well Jesus says peace be still see here is the rule here is the true ruler the true man who's going to rule over the creation it's going to be subject to him and um all of a sudden we begin to see that something is going to be a lot better and eventually it's looking forward to the new heavens and new earth where uh, it'll be the great glory of the heavenly city and all the creation will be um, useful to us and not not harming us, but but helpful. And there'll be no more um, well, tornadoes and earthquakes and famines and thorns and all that. So Adam's, Adam didn't, didn't do it right. But the, the idea of a ruler is there. The image of God. Adam and Eve were in the image of God. That means they were like God and they represented God on the earth. But... When they start blaming each other, and when they rebel against God, and when they don't obey Him, um, and then when evil and violence begin to multiply on the earth, and people are lying to each other, and they're murdering, and they're stealing, are they reflecting what God is like? No, they, they fail in the image of God. And so Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they, didn't, they, 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 they retained some of the image of God, but it was distorted, it was marred. Is this looking forward to some time when someone would come who would be the true image of God and who could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And of whom Paul could say, in him the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. Uh, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Yes, Adam was the image of God. He was like God. He represented God. But he's looking forward to someone who is going to do it in a greater way. Well, here's the Son of God. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus back to son of such and such, son of such and such, son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So here's a son that God has created, but there's, I think, looking forward to a greater son who is going to be um, not only a, a human creation, but actually the true son of the Father for eternity. And so when we read about Adam, we think, wow, a wonderful creation, but he failed to rule. There must be a greater ruler coming. We look at Adam and we think, Oh, he's the image of God, but he distorted the image. So there must be a greater image of God coming. We look at Adam, we say, here's a son of God, someone that God created, but he wasn't exactly a faithful son. There must be a greater son coming. And the New Testament then sets us up to look forward, or the Old Testament sets us up to look forward to Christ. And then the idea of marriage. I think this shows us Something of exclusive love that Adam and Eve, we read at the end of Genesis that um, uh, the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. They were dwelling in the, in the Garden of Eden in harmony and joy. Uh, and there was love and fulfillment between them. And uh, therefore it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and uh, hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Um, Adam and Eve in their marriage were picturing something. And we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the beautiful love that they have for each other before, before they sin. 
with the New Testament wisdom, we should look forward to that. We should look at that, look at Adam and Eve's marriage and say, hmm, you know, here we have, here we have Adam and Eve. We have Adam and Eve as husband and wife in, in their relationship to each other. And um, Paul, when he's writing over here in Ephesians, he quotes Genesis 2. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is when he's talking about marriage in Ephesians 5. And he says, this is a great mystery. And I take it to mean Christ and the church. That's Ephesians 5, about 31 or 32. Now, in Paul's teaching over here in Ephesians, in Paul's teaching, a mystery is something that was hidden and concealed in the Old Testament, but that Paul now makes known the meaning of. And Paul says, Adam and Eve being married to each other, he said, that was a mystery. That is, back there in the Garden of Eden, they didn't know it, but Paul says, I take it to mean Christ and the church. Paul's looking back and he's saying, when God created Adam and Eve, they were intended to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Did Adam and Eve know that? That they were, they were in their relationship picturing how Christ would love the church? No, they didn't know that. It was a mystery. But God had it in mind all along. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, it's a mystery, but it refers to Christ and the church. So when we see Adam and Eve, now with the help of the New Testament, we should think, you know what? There's a greater husband coming, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a greater bride coming, the church, that is the bride of Christ. And that means, Paul says, that for all marriages... Marriages were intended from the beginning, and marriages now, Paul says, should reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. That's why he can say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's why he can say, wives, be subject to your husbands as the church is subject to Christ. So there's a relationship there that was intended by God from the beginning, and it's what marriage is about. And when we see the first marriage, we're thinking, Ah, it's looking forward to a greater relationship, the exclusive love between Christ and his church. So that's Adam and Eve looking forward to a greater ruler, a greater image of God, a greater son of God, and a greater marriage even than the first marriage. No, it's not. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I didn't get into that, but... But yes, this let us make man in our image. That us, plural, our, plural. I once uh, spent a day or two looking at all the uh, interpretations of the rabbis in Jewish literature after the Old Testament. They were trying to figure it out and they couldn't figure out what that plural was. They had different ideas, but they were contradicting each other. And I think it's an indication of plurality of persons in the Trinity right there, sure. Right in Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good, okay, that's Adam and Eve. Should we try another one? The fall, okay. The fall. Here we have the temptations. The temptations. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and told them not to eat of the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
there's a temptation to disobey. What happened? They succeed? They failed. They failed. So we look back here and we see Adam and Eve failed. And so now here's a type of Christ, but a type has similarities and differences. This is a case where there are differences. Adam and Eve failed in the temptation. They ate of the fruit that they weren't supposed to, and uh, they sinned against God. Well, so is that the end of the story? Is God going to give up? No, when we see Adam and Eve sinning, we're thinking, wait a minute, that's not the end. The story goes on. There's got to be somebody else coming who is going to succeed in the temptations, who's going to live a sinless life. And so in that way, the temptations look forward to the Messiah who's going to come. And you know, there are a lot of parallels between Adam and Eve in the garden and Jesus in the wilderness when he's being tempted by the devil. Because Adam and Eve, although it's a lot harder, because Adam and Eve had fellowship with one another. And they could have encouraged one another. Jesus was all alone, being tempted by the devil. Adam and Eve had everything they wanted to eat except that one tree. Jesus had nothing to eat for 40 days. And he was tempted to turn the stones into bread. And so there are, there are temptations. Um, uh, temptations uh, that Jesus succeeded in and the temptations look forward to someone who's going to succeed. Then after their sin, then God gives them mercy. He, he says, in the day you eat it, you surely die. But he doesn't carry out the sentence instantly. Now they start to die. They're separated from God spiritually. And then physically, the aging process begins. So the death eventually works out. And God says, dust you are until dust you shall return. But there's mercy. God doesn't kill them immediately. He casts them out of the garden. But he clothes them with skins of animals. There's mercy. And the animals have to die in order to make those, those garments that he, those leather jackets and leather jeans or whatever God made for them. And, and so, wait a minute, well, they're thinking, wait a minute, a life has to be given up in order to clothe us, in order to provide for us, protect us from the shame and the guilt that we feel? Hmm. Might a greater life have to be given up? to really protect us from the guilt of sin? See, there's a hint going forward in God's mercy. And wait a minute, where does that mercy come from? If they were guilty before God and they deserved eternal separation from, death, from God and they deserved to die, how can there be mercy? And thinking of that now with the benefit of the New Testament, we realize that God must have already known that the reason he didn't carry out judgment was someone later was going to take the judgment. So the mercy shown to Adam and Eve and any mercy shown to anybody in the Old Testament where it isn't just total destruction and the fires of hell, any mercy shown to anyone looks forward to Jesus taking the penalty. So Adam and Eve, again, looking forward to what Jesus would be like. And then, of course, in uh, Genesis 3.15, well, let me go... Let me, get, let me go to the next slide here. The temptations show us that someone later will face greater temptations and will not fail. And so we read it in the light of the whole of the Bible. We read these temptations. The mercy tells us that someone, someone must be coming who will take the penalty and make this mercy possible. And Romans 3.25 tells us that. I didn't put that in the notes, but Romans 3.25 says, 
when Christ came to die, it showed that God is just because he'd given mercy beforehand and where's the justice? And then there's promise of an offspring who would gain victory over the servant. So Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put en- says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, looking to be a person, he shall bruise your head. That is, decisively, finally, uh, uh, wound you uh, in a destructive way. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is, he'll be harmed in the process. This is again a mystery. It's a kernel. It's a seed. It's a hint of something later to come. But the Old Testament is filled with this expectation. Where is the offspring of the woman who is going to deliver us from Satan, from the the harm of the serpent? Where is the offspring of the woman? Is it Abel? Could be, but no. Cain kills Abel. It's not Abel. Is it Seth? Maybe, but no. Seth doesn't destroy the serpent. Is it Abraham? No. Oh, but God promises Abraham a child. Could it be that this child of Abraham will be the offspring of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head? But wait a minute. No child. I'm 90 years old. No child. I'm 91. I'm 92. I'm 93. Where's the offspring? And so the longing for the offspring of the woman who's going to fulfill these promises is there. And not till Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90 do we get Isaac. And so the offspring is born. But then God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Has he forgotten? Wait a minute, if Isaac doesn't live, how can the promise be fulfilled? And so that tension of how is that promise going to be fulfilled, it's carried out throughout the Old Testament. See, And then I'm just reading, just was reading this morning about um, the story of Moses and the people in Egypt and how Pharaoh wants to put the Hebrew children to death. What is that a threat to? It's a threat to the fulfillment of the promise that the offspring is going to come. You wipe out Israel, you don't get any Messiah. And so, wait, we're longing for the Messiah. So there's a promise of an offspring in the fall. All right, let's do one more. Let's do Cain and Abel. Hmm. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, there's something happening here. Somebody taught them that they have to give sacrifices to the Lord. They just can't say, Lord, here I am. I'm great. Don't you love me? No, wait a minute. There's some moral guilt there, and they have to give a sacrifice. There's a sense, when you've got sacrifice, you've got a sense that there's got to be a payment for your sin. And the book of Hebrews tells us, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So it wasn't just that it was an animal as opposed to sacrifice of the vegetables or fruit of the ground. It was that it was by faith that Abel brought his offering. By faith, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But did the offering of the firstborn of a flock really 
that really pay for a human being's sin? You offer a, a sheep or a goat or, or a cow? Is that really enough to pay for your sin, a human being's sin? You know, when you think about it, pretty pretty cheap price for the payment of a human life, isn't it? I think those offerings look forward. The book of Hebrews tells us that. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the offerings tell us that a life has to be paid, but they also tell us that this isn't enough. They're looking forward to a greater offering that would come. The offering of a human life that would pay for human sins. Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Hmm. Abel, a faithful servant, brings an offering in faith, has God's favor on him. He's put to death by someone from his own family put to death by his brother. Hmm, starting to sound familiar? Hmm? Might, and, and Abel wasn't the promised Messiah. But might this hint that Abel is also a type of Christ? That is, that there would be someone later coming who would be faithful and who would offer a greater sacrifice than the sacrifice of the flock, would offer the sacrifice of himself. And God would be pleased with his offering. And he would be put to death by those of his own family, by those of his own nation, as Abel was put to death. So he rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then Adam knew his wife Eve again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Here's that word, offspring. For Cain killed him. And so the promise is still alive. Abel is dead. He's not the offspring that's promised. Cain is evil. He killed his brother. He's not the offspring that's promised. Where's the hope? Ah, here's another child. God has appointed another offspring. To Seth also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so, um, I think that Cain and Abel also indicate to us that human beings have to offer sacrifice for sin, but the sacrifice they offer is inadequate, and they're pointing to a greater obedient son who dies at the hands of evildoers and who makes a perfect sacrifice for sin. Now, one other thing we can do, and I've got about three minutes left here, is we can trace those themes beyond the life and death of Christ into our own lives and ultimately into the new heavens and new earth. So we go back. Adam as a ruler over the earth, Christ as the true ruler, Adam failed. What about us? Well, doesn't the New Testament say that we're going to reign with Christ? Hmm? You've been faithful over little, I'll set you over much. You'll have authority over five cities. You'll have authority over ten cities. And John's going to run all the desalination plants <laughs> over all the oceans of the world, because I know he's just been working on that. What are we going to do? I think, uh, and I think that all of our work today in producing goods from the earth, producing food, producing computers, producing trucks and cars and all that, that's fulfilling this ultimate goal that God has that the, will rule over the earth and will be subject to us. 
Um, and if you have pets, same thing. I think if you eat hamburgers, it's the same thing, actually. But anyway, <coughs> that's ruling over the animals in a different way. <coughs> um, are we in the image of God? Yes. <coughs> more and more. <coughs> Excuse me. And Paul says, you are being renewed in the image of God. Uh, we're to speak truth to one another because part of the image of God is speaking truthfully. You're being renewed in the likeness of God, in holiness and righteousness, and we're being changed into his image from glory to glory. So as we go on in the Christian life, we're reflecting more and more. We're becoming more like Christ so that not only is Jesus in the image of God, but in the new heavens and new earth, we also will truly, in our moral character that's sinless, reflect the image of God as well. And his purpose in Adam will be fulfilled in Christ first and then in us for all eternity. And we'll all be sons of God, or sons and daughters, but we'll have the status of the firstborn son. We'll have the privilege of, of reigning with him. And, uh, we'll, uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, Christ and the church um, exemplified in the perfect relationship between him and us and then among all believers. Um, temptations, ultimately, we face temptations, but as Christ has overcome them, he gives us strength to overcome them. We experience mercy uh, the offspring has come. Um, and the sacrifices, we don't ever... Jesus had offered the perfect sacrifice. We don't have to offer sacrifices for sin anymore. But uh, the New Testament says in Hebrews, when we offer worship, that's a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. When we do good deeds of kindness to others, uh, um, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we volunteer, we don't have to pay for sins with sacrifices anymore, but when we do good for others and care for them and help them and worship God, then we are offering sacrifices much better than the sacrifice that uh, Abel offered. Uh, it's because Jesus had offered the perfect sacrifice and now God is pleased with uh, what we sacrifice, not to pay for our sins, but out of thanksgiving. So we can trace those themes into our own lives as well. What do you think? Is that interesting? Um, it just seems fascinating to me to do this. We'll go on and do a little bit. We'll do Noah and the flood next time. And uh, we'll do a few more stories like that just to see how this all looks forward to Christ. This is the day that we're going to get out at 9.15 because um, one Sunday a month we have to get out 10 minutes early because kids stuff come in here, comes in here. I have one more final repeat announcement and then, um, and then I'll pray and we're going to skip a, skip a hymn tonight, today and, and we'll be dismissed. The final announcement, Georgian, where are you? Georgian has asked that everybody 35 and under, if you would go through that door, where is that? Way in the back to go through that door. And she, Georgian wants to meet with you about a class uh, social here uh, coming up in the spring. If, if Even if you're just brand new to the class and you're 35 and under, she, it doesn't include me, sorry. Uh, but uh, she's asking you to meet with her right, right immediately after class. Let's pray and we'll be done. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Um, what amazing amazing events that you caused to unfold as you gradually revealed your purpose through the history of the Old Testament. And uh, what riches are there, Lord, as we look and study and ponder and see insight into the mysteries that were hidden there for ages and generations and then became evident as the Messiah came your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ.
We thank you for him, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.